I'm a big proponent of something called self-determination theory. Mm-hmm. And it's about mastery and intrinsic motivation. And there's three main categories of that. It's autonomy, competence, and relatedness. And those three themes are all perceptions. It's not, oh, I gave you autonomy. Well, do you believe you have autonomy? And is that autonomy authentic to your nature? Or is it off of some sort of judgmental ego in your head telling you what you should do and all based off of, say, expectations or societal expectations of what your parents want you to do, what your girlfriend expects you to do, what your coaches expect you to do. That's not authentic. That's not autonomous. Keep it on the level. Welcome to the Offball Podcast. My name is Martin Reeder. I'm a 2012 beach volleyball Olympian, Nike trainer, and movement leader. Here in the Offball Conversations, we challenge what it means to be an athlete. We get into the identity beyond sport, what it means to truly invest in personal development, and explore how that shows up for you in your life beyond the field of play today's conversation we go into the deep end this fine gentleman by the name of austin einhorn he is a movement philosopher this guy thinks differently asks bigger questions of himself and of the athletes that he trains and i really believe he's approaching professional development through movement and training in a way that not too many other people are. Pay attention to what he has to say. We go into philosophy of performance and movement. We challenge the art of learning and creativity within sport and the the process of life. And then we get into autonomy for kids, for youth, as they grow in sport, as, as they become young individuals and Really just the art of learning as a whole. There's so much to be gained here. We go into the weeds a few different times, but if you can hang on, there's a lot to be gained from this episode. So enjoy the next hour and a half with my man, Austin Einhorn. Welcome to the Offball Podcast. Could not be more excited to have this conversation with guest Austin Einhorn. I have come to know Austin via the socials, thanks to Lauren Frederick, who's a professional female beach volleyball player. She tagged me in a post at one point in time on movement. I then saw this guy, Austin, who was a Jedi and had focused on all these kinds of movements I've never seen before and related them to the volleyball swing and health. I then bit hook, line, and sinker. We started dialoguing, and all of a sudden, now we're on conversations regularly, talking life, talking philosophy, talking movement, talking next-level stuff. Austin, welcome. Hey, good to be here. There's so many places that we could start, but I'm really intrigued because we haven't gone here in terms of your youth, man, where where you kind of come from and, and what your childhood looked like as as we progress through the podcast, we can then relate it to to your passions and pursuits. But where are you from 
and and talk to me about 10 to 13 year old Austin Einhorn. Um, I'm from Encinitas, California, which some people might recognize as a small little hotspot for volleyball and surfing and skateboarding. Um, Sean White is from there. Tony Hawk, uh, Blink-182, um, some cool people. Uh, <clears throat> by the way, me, I am, I'm also from there. <laughs> Equally <laughs> and, as cool. Uh, I guess 10 to 13-year-old me. I would say if you watch me in any random day, I would be caught skateboarding outside or um, riding my bike to some sort of practice or around town or skateboarding and then building Legos and never using the instructions. Um, I was like, why, why would this booklet tell me how to build this thing? There's the picture on the cover. Like that's all I need. Yeah. Um, and eating the worst food imaginable. <laughs> Not playing volleyball. That was, that's for sure. Are we talking KD here? Are we, are we talking uh, wagon wheels? What, what are we going on? So from 10 to 13, um, particularly 7th grade, I had a pretty dramatic growth spurt. I grew 6 inches in 4 months, oh, wow. which resulted in my bones growing too fast for my muscles and i was in a super awesome wheelchair that got me made fun of of all the super from all the really nice people and pushed around and downstairs and whatnot fun story well anyways time out so you grew so fast that you required a wheelchair yeah i because the pain started out on crutches because one leg was hurting a lot more than another and then both legs started hurting and each step i remember felt somewhat like somebody putting a nail gun through my heel into my whole leg. And it got to a point where I basically told my mom, like, I need to put myself in a wheelchair because I can't walk. And if I was walking around the house, it was as if, have you ever seen anybody collapse under a one rep max back squat that was too heavy for them? I have, yes. That was me, but walking through the kitchen and nothing on me. (laughs) Somehow... Um, my muscles just couldn't keep up and I would be walking around and then could collapse and frantically grab onto a counter. Wow. Um, and so at school, uh, I was in a wheelchair as it's, you know, legally supposed to be ADA accessible and my house is not. So I had to walk. Um, yeah, that got me in my first and only fight I've ever been in. Did you fight in the wheelchair? It was after I was out of the wheelchair okay, and I was gotcha. six, two and the biggest kid in school and three kids that were pushing me around in the wheelchair and making fun of me the whole time. Um, I got my sweet revenge. Yeah, retribution. <laughs> Love it. Now, would you attest potentially that pain in, in your body's, you know, obviously that's a very quick growth spurt. Was was there a, a, a bit of malnutrition based on your diet that you think played in part of that, or you just, you just grew really, really quickly? Um, I don't know. Maybe. I, I was eating so much food that even if pizza doesn't have very much magnesium or something, I was eating enough pizza to get my full amount of magnesium. My growth spurt allowed me to basically be on the Michael Phelps diet gotcha. of uh, 2012, I think, or 2008. 10,000 10, 10, kilocals a, a week or day. Yeah. Whatever that was. Yeah. Two, two medium pizzas in a sitting, 40 chicken McNuggets, donuts for breakfast, boxes of cereal at a time um i mean i got i got my sweet tooth on for sure 
<laughs> so at that point in time, let's just say we were out of the wheelchair now. You got your legs. Um, did you play multiple sports? Were you athletic by nature? You have a creative mind that I, I can't wait to speak to you about because it shows up in your work now. Um, were, where was your focus at, at that kind of 13 to 15, let's just say, um, as you were progressing through middle and high school? Um, it was primarily on soccer and a little bit on baseball, but I wasn't very good at baseball. And my coach, I remember this guy, coach Frank, and he was like straight out of a, uh, bad news bears movie, like terrible mustache, smelled bad, really mean, and just left me out in right field or left field where nobody hit the ball just to like sit there and make me think I'm getting playing time. And then when I'm not there. I'm on the bench. Um, and then I would, whenever I got hit with a baseball, I was like, I don't want to play anymore. This hurts too much. Um, eventually quit and just did soccer. Then got cut from the high school soccer team, or didn't make the soccer team. Um, but I always liked jumping. Where, I guess, 10 and 13-year-old me when I wasn't in a wheelchair was caught jumping off my roof of my house, trying to jump up as many stairs as I could, then jump it down as many stairs as I could. Um, learned to tuck and roll really good there. That helped me when I fell skateboarding. Um, I would say I was fairly athletic. And then once I got to be 6'2 as an eighth grader, my dream was just I want to be able to dunk anything. Mm -hmm. Dunk a tennis ball, oh, mission accomplished. Okay, now it's going to be soccer ball, volleyball, basketball, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so once I got cut from the soccer team, my high school PE coach was like, why don't you play volleyball? You would be fantastic. And he told me that when we were playing volleyball in PE. And this was at a point where I thought volleyball was just a girl's sport. Yeah, I was going like, to ask, cause how, why was volleyball not on your radar at that point? I didn't. I had friends that were girls that were playing volleyball, and it just I didn't know it was also a boy's sport until high school. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So you were a jumper. I, I, likewise, I love jumping off of things. You're, normally, I was jumping on a skateboard or, or a snowboard on my side, um, so I can totally relate to that. Um, we've spoken a little bit in times past on volume. And so at what point in time did you start to focus on volleyball? Because for, for the listeners, you wound up playing professionally over in Germany and, and, and taking it to another level. I, we'll talk about your university career, but... When did you start putting more and more time and focus into the sport of volleyball? Um, once I started playing in high school and I realized I was fairly good just because I could jump high and was taller than everybody at that time. Can't teach uh, height. <laughs> I didn't end up being the tallest uh, at the end of my career, but I could jump really high. Uh, I learned about club volleyball. I was like, oh, there's like a, a club side to this. And it's more serious and better coaching. Sign me up. And really, it just became something I was having so much fun with, partly because of the people I was with. Um, and I just liked, liked my task as a volleyball player to jump as high as I could every time and hit as hard as I could. I never really intentionally tried to tip a volleyball. I would always just try to hit it through anybody or the ground or the net. Um, I've, I think yeah. I've tipped five times in my career, so I, I know what you're talking <laughs> about. Yeah, especially as a beach player. That's impressive. <laughs> well, it, this brings me to my first modern thought is 
for you as an athlete, call it late entry, but at that time it was the norm, you know, I believe that that allowed for longevity for you because in, in no way were you pre-fatigued, is no, in no way were you broken by playing this sport at the age of seven or eight like a professional athlete. Can you talk to me a little bit about, A, your philosophy in, in current youth sport culture and, and what that looks like? Because uh, I, I know you you and I vibe well on this where, you know, you talk talk about youth volleyball now being like playing on a on a basketball court with a medicine ball. Can you explain that concept to the listeners? Because I I love it. Yeah. So, I grew up playing basketball for one year, um, and a little bit of tennis, but not much. But mostly soccer and baseball. And what you see uniquely in those sports is that the size of the game, the size of the field, the size and weight of the ball, the size of the goals, all shrink to be more appropriate to that player or the the player of whatever, their size. It doesn't even matter their age. I think sports should be more separated based on size than, than age. And you take volleyball, a sport where it shrinks just a little bit, but not enough. And you see little kids contorting their body in ways that might be not so useful for longevity in order to accomplish a task. So the task being, I need to get the ball over the net and try to hit the ground on the other side. And so then you have these little kids who are not capable of accomplishing this task in in efficient manner, cementing solutions into their neuromuscular system of, okay, well, this is how I know how to get the ball over the net, so I'm going to keep doing that. And modern coaching culture doesn't have the tools necessary. Most modern coaches don't have the tools, necessary tools to change that once they are of the adequate size to play the sport. Right. And so then you see a girl I like to pick on is uh, Michaela Foke, F-O-E-C-K-E from Nebraska, I believe, where she was the freshman of the year, all-star, super amazing player. And I look at how she moves and how her body organizes to solve the problem of volleyball is not one that will allow her a long career and probably not allow her longevity and pain-free movement once she's done with the volleyball. Word up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm writing stuff down as, as you say this because these are – these are all deep things, mm-hmm. and I love how you positioned it. I think it's through you challenging me to, to read the book, The Art of Learning, through Josh Waitskin. Um, unbelievable book that we will discuss at one point in time. But we're all just solving problems, and I now see sport as we're, we're just solving these problems, and, and that's allowed me to think of coaching in a different way because how can we shift the problem just a little bit so that we can build creativity because how one person solves a problem shouldn't be how everybody else solves that problem. Exactly. So um, one thing I just wanted to button up, I know you mentioned kids playing volleyball, as I said, is like uh, them 
playing with a three pound medicine ball on like a soccer field. That's basically an analogy of what it's like for them as if we were at adults, if we were playing volleyball with a medicine ball on a basketball court on a 12 foot net or a soccer field, whatever. And they just don't have the size and strength and power to be able to compete in that arena. So understanding that's your, your thought process, have you built a solution for yourself on, okay, how would we introduce, how would you introduce a nine, eight, 10 year old to the sport of volleyball? Have, have you played around with that concept? I have in my head and with other coaches, but because I don't coach, uh, as I don't have access to a facility all the time and have a team and coach, I don't do it too much. However, uh, I have played with ideas and seen other coaches do some things. Would, would but you, I would, would rather you, do you want to show that? Lead you, uh, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> I think it's pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. What would I want to? I want to turn it back on you. Beautiful. Well, okay, I. What would you do? So, beach volleyball. I wound up playing at thirteen, fourteen, and you arguably you get better touches. So two on two reducing the size of the court a little bit, reducing the number of players on the, on the court is humongous. Uh, played around with the, the soft light volleyballs for, for youth, but I wind up putting more a smaller playing area with, with two kids and, and then going through that. Now, I, through one of your podcasts on the Aperos podcast, um, the youth volleyball development um, I guess lead for USAV is starting to talk about two on two and playing over a tape versus a net and that kind of thing. So the scalability of that, I really, really like, um, I'm a, I'm a fan of, of teaching a great, a, a skill in terms of proper movement patterning and then, and then really just getting to have fun and be creative with that. I also haven't thought too deeply into it, but I need to, because I would love to grow the sport of volleyball, but, it's just very challenging for kids to enjoy it at an early age because it's so stagnant. You have one ball and a kid's on a big court and, and the rallies are just aren't there. So they have these negative experiences. So my goal would be to try to change the experience so they actually enjoy it. And, and I haven't really gone too far into that. Yeah. And remember we can alter gravity, not only with a softer ball, but a softer and bigger ball. So it has more drag in the air, like a, not a beach volleyball, but a normal beach ball that might get passed around at a concert or whatnot. Mm -hmm. That's going to have a little bit more drag in the air, and it's going to give the athlete more time to then organize themselves to put it over the net. The one thing I'll challenge you on is that I don't think they need to be coached as much. Love that. Yes. So there's there's two athletes of, of interest here. Uh, Dick Fosbury. Most people know his last name for the Fosbury flop. <laughs> And he invented Which the modern day, um, the modern day high jump technique. And he won a world championship the first, I believe, the first year he tried it for a gold medal. And, and another guy, his name is Don Bradman, and he is known as the best cricket batter of all time from 1920. And he never received coaching. And played with a ping pong ball in at home instead of a normal cricket ball and created his own technique. Mm -hmm. And yet people and when he got went to coaches, coaches tried to change him. 
and it didn't work. And then he got worse. And then you see coaches doing the same thing now, where I think a lot of times the coaches believe that in order to serve their purpose, they need to coach. And they might think, I don't, what, what, they might not be comfortable with just stepping back, not saying anything, and just letting them play, letting them figure it out. Understanding that if the game is correctly suited to the athlete, they should, the game should teach itself. Hmm. And then where coaching comes in is coaching can come in with tweaking some things later on, or if they see, if they're well educated enough to see that their technique is not conducive to longevity and will result in injury, then I think they should step in. Rather, or I think by and large, most kids are overcoached. That makes a ton of sense. And I see a lot less people having fun playing sport now. And so everyone's trying to emulate a certain thing and they're so focused on executing things in, in such a specific way so that the creativity is, is certainly being lost. The fun is certainly being lost. So would the emphasis for you be about presenting, okay, here's the goal, figure it out, and then just let kids kind of figure that game out or that subset of the game out? Yes, exactly. And then if they, you have an idea of what you want to see and or what you, what you know to be more useful than less useful, you might say, hey, how could you do that differently? Or instead of giving them explicit cues as like put, jump with your knees out, you could say, um, how could you get off the ground quicker? Or how are you, give them a, a question that is a tool for them to understand their body better. Hey, do you know what's happening with your knees when you jump? What do you mean? No one's ever asked me about my knees. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, go jump. I want you to pay attention to what happens with your knees. Um, they bend. Okay, now dive deeper. Go jump again and get more specific. So they bend and what? They bend and they go forward. Is that it? Okay, I'll go again. Figure it out. Oh, they, they go bend. They bend and they go in. Hmm. Hey, do you think, and most people know this implicitly, do you think that that's like good for your knees based off of societal norms and culture? Uh, I guess, I guess not. Is it? You, and you might give them a little bit of coaching that no, it's not. It, it might lead to some sort of inefficiency long-term or pain or injury, maybe not short-term, but long-term. Oh, okay. So now that I know what happens with my knees when I jump, I have the awareness to start preventing that. And I might say to give them a bracket of what's possible. Okay. How far out could you have your knees? An example might be an example of this would be, Hey, if you bowl and you have the bumpers, cause that's the most fun way to bowl, but you always hit that left bumper every time. And I'm saying, Hey, Martin, I need you to bowl down the middle what the hell is the middle? I think I'm doing it down the middle. It works. I get the ball down the end. I hit like three pins, but it's always on the left side. I want you to bang the right side of the bumpers, the right side of the lane. 
start understanding what of what you're capable of okay now that i know the end range on the left side and the end range on the right side i might be able to navigate this middle path mm-hmm. yeah a bit of a triangulation i love that um this brings a thought up uh you recently released a, a great article on the art of coaching volleyball uh you spoke about three three things within the sport of volleyball that is, or could be potentially problematic within movement. We just covered the, the knee piece. Just to bring some light to that article, because I'd love to talk to you about it. Are there what are the two other things? I think it was shoulder, was it the swing, which is something that you're super passionate about with volleyball. And I think there was one other movement topic that you addressed. Ankles and Ankles. I mean they're involved in everything, but primarily jumping is what uh, I talked about in that article. Yeah, because I'm doing a, a thing called Mastery Camp uh, where the goal is to take kids and, and teach them about their bodies in a way that you're giving them the information exactly the way that you're talking about. Uh, this is great context because I want them to leave understanding so much more about themselves versus, and I think there's a, a large group of coaches that hold on to the information. And it's kids come to me for the information for me being the coach. And it's about me. I deliver something. I hold on to it a little bit and we chip away at that versus the complete freedom. And you're more of a Sherpa and you're navigating, you're facilitating a bigger dialogue around solving problems, which is my recent kind of epiphany. And, and you're one of the people that's shown me to that. So a, just a tip of the hat to you, my friend, cause how you approach coaching is is so self-exploratory and you're, you're giving so much freedom to the person on the other side to understand what's good for them because there's a certain level of ownership that has to come from them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and two things come to mind from what you just said is, so there's a piece of autonomy and then there's a piece about... Uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? And so a coach might, you might resonate with this. And this is a a story I heard from a philosopher, Alan Watts. He's a British guy who popularized Eastern philosophy into Western culture. And he tells a story about, he overhears this conversation. Oh, kindly let me help you or you'll drown, said the monkey to the fish, safely putting the fish up a tree. Right. And that that's the monkey's trying to maybe be a coach, be helpful, but not detecting and observing what the fish actually needs. Where the fish absolutely needs to stay in the water, but the monkey doesn't see it from that perspective. Oh my God, you're going to drown. Let me put you in a tree where I think I belong. Secondly, the autonomy piece is, is crucial. I'm a big proponent of something called self determination theory. Mm hmm. And it's about mastery and intrinsic motivation. And there's three main categories of that. It's autonomy, competence, and relatedness. And those three themes are all perceptions. It's not, oh, I gave you autonomy. Well, do you believe you have autonomy? And is that autonomy authentic to your nature or is it off of some sort of judgmental ego in your head telling you what you should do and all based off of, say, expectations or societal expectations of what your parents want you to do, what your girlfriend expects you to do, what your coaches expect you to do. That's not authentic. That's not autonomous. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then the competence piece, like, hey, man, did did I get better at this today? Did, did I, my, where, where do I stand at this? And then the relatedness factor is, you know, you and I are adding to my relatedness of the day, right? I, I'll go home tonight and I'll think like, oh yeah, like Martin and I bond today over this podcast and it's relevant to what we're both doing. So the relatedness is, is twofold of, you know, are we building relationships and is it related to our visions, philosophies, goals, whatnot? So it may sound like you have it all figured out here, Austin. You got some amazing. Oh, God, no. You, you got some great thoughts. What I want to come back to, going back to your story and, and really communicating to youth as much as possible, or parents and coaches, but really articulating we're all on this journey of, of going through it and, and learning at all times. And so for the youth that are hopefully listening, going, oh, wow, Austin's this deep thinker. Well, talk me through your your academic career, and then and then we'll move into the, the university side of things, because I've heard on a couple tones of podcasts where you were totally disinterested in in learning, or, or maybe that was your university side. But let's, let's talk about that side, because I think it's so important to know that we we haven't figured it out. We're going through it at all times and we each have our own journeys. Yeah. When you said my academic side, I first thought of what I do day to day now, not college. Mm -hmm. I joke that when I was in college, I majored in volleyball and minored, minored in my education. And <laughs> um, me too, man. It was just this underlying feeling that I had from like sophomore year of high school where it's like, am I allowed to cuss on this? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. <laughs> what the fuck am I doing here? I hate calculus. I hate algebra. I'm never going to use this in my life. I know that. What do like, I don't need to learn this. So why am I spending my time here? In college, I think it's a business. And this is how I, I think about it. It's an experience where I failed in a calculus class. I think an upper division calculus class that was required for my major. And I failed along with 60%, I think 50 to 60% of the rest of the class. And I did not feel okay with just sitting back and thinking that that's okay. I paid the university thousands of dollars to have this person claiming to be a teacher try and teach me calculus. And throughout the, the academic quarter, I would go to TAs and free tutoring from the school and graduate assistants to have them help me with my homework and practice tests. And each one, each test, each practice test would say, I don't, I don't know how to solve this. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. Good luck. And so I went up to the board of the department and basically asked for my money back. Like this teacher doesn't belong teaching. They sold, you sold me a faulty product. This is, this isn't an education that I'm paying for. And the board director said, Oh, I've sat in on the class. I think it's fine. See you later. Get out of my face. Um, so that's what I think of college. And 
I mean, I don't want to spend the entire time talking about education. Yeah, because, no, and it was just a single a single but, point. And yeah. you know, there there has to be some value because it's a part of the process, not to say that it is for everyone, but was there one piece of value that you took from your college university journey and then we'll we'll move back to to our passions and, and build on those? I disagree. I don't think it has to be a value. If you look, if so, I've been listening to Seth Godin for many years now, and he has some pretty radical views on education. And education, the education system started out as a product of the Industrial Revolution, where they needed people to be able to sit in an office or a factory and do monotonous work for eight hours and be told what to do. So then they created a culture of education where that's what happens, and that's continued on till today. And as much as I would like to um, bring in some of the philosophies that I, I really like and say there is positivity for my education and, you know, I'm really glad I went to college. The best thing that I got out of it was the friends that I made playing volleyball and my experience playing volleyball. Mm-hmm. And that's fair, man. That's all good. That and was my experience. It, yeah, and, and what I what I get from that though, and every single person is different, is you know, you you spoke about the self determination theory, but but you're on a journey of self exploration, man. You you're a type of person that it has to make sense for you to use your resources to to then grow within that. So let's let's move it back to you then in your your volleyball um side of things because you you were let's move to your major um talk to me a little bit about your your volleyball experience let's say going from high school to then going to university or or college what was that transition like for you oh transition you know that's a a hot button topic for me right now (laughs) um i went from winning the junior olympic tournament with my club team and winning back-to-back division titles with my high school to UC Santa Cruz. And in high school and club, I was terrified of a gym, didn't want to lift weights. The reason, my PE coach also told me to be the kicker for the football team and to play basketball. However, I declined both of those offers because I knew the football team lifted and was intimidating. And the basketball team had to run three miles for the tryout, and I didn't want to do that. And the volleyball team, there was no whiff of lifting or running or anything so i joined that team (laughs) and so i hadn't lifted a weight at all and then i go to college and not that we were required to lift weights but it was expected and other guys were doing it and so i started dabbling around in the weight room but not to any quality i basically did a circuit of all the machines that were offered of fixed movements and fixed weights and whatnot And increasing my volume, frequency, and density and going from playing against kids my age to playing against men four years older than me, I had a stress fracture in my back. And I people misdiagnosed it. And uh, one doctor told me it was ankylosing spondylitis. My five lumbar vertebrae were going to fuse together to be one bone, and I'd never walk or run normally again. Whoa. I told him a big fuck you and went somewhere else. Um, and so I, you know, I, I went to the school of hard knocks to learn how to survive in a much more intense college season. Um, and what I needed to do for, with my body eventually going off the deep end. Um, my fifth year 
working out about eight times a week at CrossFit, thinking that after two two missed opportunities of national championships, I had to do more. And then um, after college, uh, I luckily was good enough to make it onto a pro team in Germany. Not a very good one, but... Um, you know, I, I was able to compete at a D1 level, uh, I thought, and had a few awards in college. Um, but once I was in Germany, where I was was terrible. It was a bad environment for me. I wasn't making any friends with anybody on the team. Um, I quit. And you came back to North America at that point? Came back to North America. Came back to Santa Cruz. Um, didn't know what to do. I had put all my eggs in the basket of I'm going to play professional volleyball for three to five years and then figure it out. Mm-hmm. And some of my most fond memories and also most anxiety-riddled ones would be like 15-hour train rides with no technology, just a journal and books that I'd already read staring out a window thinking like oh what do i do now i have no idea wow so one thing that comes up through all of this did you have a mentor or did you have someone that you looked up to that you wanted to learn from or or exemplify their behavior or their results was there someone that you looked up to within this journey that that helped you along not really um, you know, my, my path has been somewhat more of a independent one. Uh, you could say my mom passed away when I was 15 and then dad wasn't in the picture. Um, and I had some help along the way and, you know, obviously lived with a, a great family. Um, but there wasn't too much. I didn't reach out for help too much. Uh, still could do that more, um, but didn't really have much of a mentor or a consistent guide along the way as I as I do now, as I've sought out mentors and people to ask good questions for me or give me advice when I when I want that. Mm-hmm. So on that journey, being fairly you know solitary, um, what was your driving force, man? What what? did you want to accomplish or what kept you going forward considering, you know, your mother passes away at 15. That's heavy. That's heavy. Where, um, what, what did you draw upon, man? I just liked sports, man. That was, that was like where I was having the most fun. Um, especially early on, it was when everything else disappeared and all I was thinking about was volleyball and playing. And uh, it was a really fun environment where that, Unfortunately, that kind of drifted away where it was much more, um, I don't know, nuts and boltsy, where it's like, okay, this is what I need to do, A, B, and C, and it wasn't, it became, it wasn't fun anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the driving force was like, I just, I want to win, I want to win everything. I wanted to be the best. The best, not my best. How good were you at losing? 
Um, so I'll talk about the national championship that we lost, where it was my fourth year, and we were up, we were about to be up two games to none in the national championship for a team that we already crushed 3-0 earlier in the year. And we ended up losing 32-30 instead of uh, 30-27, which we had a chance to, to do. Um, and then we lost 4-1 in the national championship. And I'll say some of my, our team didn't rise to the occasion and the other team did. And I was in the locker room and every guy in there is crying. Everybody's hugging each other. We were ranked number one. We were, we only lost like two or three times along the year. We thought it was in the bag. And I, as angry and sad and disappointed and all those negative emotions I was feeling, I was like, I did everything I could. And so once I was putting in, I guess, more work than less, I was pretty okay with losing. I wasn't okay with losing if I didn't prepare. Mm-hmm. So you were you got very good at controlling what you could control and investing in that and and having faith in that and and knowing that you gave it your all therefore the outcome was irrelevant because you showed up at a hundred. Yeah, um, I somehow vivid. I have this almost almost photographic memory with certain events, and I remember sophomore year of college. I was sitting in front of my computer and I saw a quote from the Dalai Lama that said something along the lines of, "If it's in your control." don't worry about it. If it's not in your control, don't worry about it. (laughs) And so then I was like, Oh, duh. Like there's no reason to worry about anything. Man, I love that. And then I've just put everything in I could in my control. (laughs) So what did you build your identity around considering volleyball, you know, the fun, the love that you had for that sport. That's what you were investing in you obviously weren't all consumed with winning at all costs because you wanted to be a winner. And if you weren't a winner, then you were a loser. You know, you had kind of given that up and and taken full control of yourself and your actions. What did you build your identity around? Who were you at, at that point? I don't know if I identified as a volleyball player. Like I am a volleyball player. That is who I am. I knew it was something that I just did. Uh, you know, I'm me and I play volleyball. However, I don't think I had anything else uh, going on where I was like, oh yeah, I'm also this. It was just kind of empty. And, um, you know, I'm still like every day, so it's like, man, who, who am I? What do I, what am I doing? You know, I'm trying to, get more clear on that quite frequently even with you know my training it's like what do i do i have no idea what i do i just do so this is a perfect segue into where you moved into now i don't necessarily want to spend too much time in in your journey as i think it was a therapist for a little bit before you went on your own i want to go right to the juicy stuff where you know we you all of a sudden maybe we'll talk about the transition where you realized hey i can do something on my own or i can i can start my own jam take me through where you're at 
headspace wise and maybe the moment where you realize that you could build your own thing and, and then we can talk about the thing that you're doing? Yeah. Fast forward from pro volleyball and there are some scenes of dumb luck and knowing the right people and just kind of going with the flow for lack of a better term. And I started working with my first professional athlete and his name is Dwight Lowry, NFL player. And within the first four weeks, um, we did somewhat of an intensive, an intensive, and we improved so much of his physiology and skills um, where he, he, you know, was 27 at the time, eight year, six or seven, eight year veteran in the league. And we put six inches on his vertical, improved his running economy by 75%, removed all aspects of pain. And he went from being cut to having his best season of his entire career. But it was in that moment, the fourth week after our training, where we retested and he smiled like a giddy little kid. And we didn't even need to look up the test. It was just glaringly obvious something really positive had just happened. So you guys only did dead deadlifts and bench press, right? I mean, well, don't forget about your crunches and your curls, of course. You, like the bicep curl really is the foundation for all athletic performance. It has to be done on an Olympic lifting platform though in a cage just to take up the biggest square area because the the exercise yeah. is so so crucial and in I space. Heard it increases your growth hormone if you check Instagram and your rest intervals. Okay, so bullet back. Obviously, obviously, <laughs> we're, we're shooting at their peeps because Austin has an incredible outlook on movement. Where I, I was first so just mystified by the things that he was doing because me being a late entry, you know, dare I call it air quote fitness expert, I thought I knew some things about squatting and deadlifting and, and movement, and then all of a sudden I looked, I was like, I haven't, I can't even reverse engineer what you're doing. And it was so intriguing. And, and so I'd love to, hey, let's go back to you. Now, all of a sudden, you have this affirmation from a professional athlete who arguably made the biggest gains in their career deep into it. What what was your philosophy? What is your philosophy on, on movement and, and how to improve the human capacity? What is it now or what was it then? Let's let's go what it what it was and then maybe we can go through a, a bit of an evolution. Yeah, what it was then was weights are bad. Weights cause compensation. Um, we did his improvements without really ever touching a weight. Hmm. Um, movement must be perfect. You can't go on to bigger endeavors unless you make your smaller movements perfect. Um, it was quite rigid. It achieved results, luckily, with him um, because he already had all the strength and power in the world necessary. Um, however, that is not about, that is not how I would have gone about it today. Gotcha. 
So now you you work with a ton of different athletes. You you got a pole vaulter on your your roster. You're really breaking down the mechanics of the volleyball athlete, and, and you've put out arguably the best content I've ever seen on the volleyball arm swing. Understanding there's a difference between hitting at the net and jump serving. So therefore, you know the jumping and the landing mechanics, all that kind of stuff. Like you're you're in it, man. Your Bruce Lee movement. Uh, is is super on point so talk to me about where you're at right now and maybe some lessons that you've learned along the way um weights are not bad weights don't have any value and except the wow value that we place on them based on how we interact the subject and object interaction um i'm much more lenient with movement like all movement is good it's all movement is still just a problem solving activity sometimes it fits that lock or solves the problem better than other ways and so the purpose of movement and purpose of life you might say is just to continually be better and choose the higher value higher evolution of movement or philosophy or or life and Really, the, I guess, as you can tell, I'm still figuring out how clearly I can say what I do. There's two ways to go about improving sports performance. Either you go about improving the subject, the, uh, the human, in their psychology and physiology, or you go about improving how the subject and object interact. Mm. And that, that is, um, how does that person interact? What is the event, the moment-by-moment razor's edge of experience of them in sport how they interact with the object whether it's a net another person or the ball and that can be uh, led to a lot of different things but the quality of mind and the presence of mind in that dramatically can improve performance so you're saying that the brain has something to do with this being present and being mindful or aware of your surroundings the activity is important. Some might say the brain is more important than the physiology and the muscles and the squats and the bar velocity you have on your power clean. And um, Yes. <laughs> Talk to me about psychology, Austin, because we haven't really dove into this, so I, I'm super intrigued. Like, How do you approach this psychological element to training and, and to evolving the athlete oh and there's no right or wrong here man we're just jamming i know i know i'm just trying to prepare what i want to say so i'm gonna start it off with my what my performance psychologist says to me when i ask him these kinds of questions he says now I don't want to prepare you for a conversation or guide you into a conversation you're not prepared to have. Mm. That being said, I will do my best at, at what I'm, what I try to do with psychology in that or performance psychology in the mind. You know, it's just, it's, it's a problem solving activity. It's a riddle, if you will, in that, okay, that, that way of how you're solving that riddle isn't working. Find another way. And 
everything that happens, that's okay. It's a non-reactive, non-reactive mind. Uh, occasionally, it, it might be appropriate to have the no mind experience, which is a reference from The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise, where he's trying to think his way through a uh, samurai fight uh, or training. And his instructor or mentor comes up to him and is saying, like, you, mi you mind wind, you mind fighter, you mind audience, you mind this. No mind. No mind. And, oh, okay, so this is now coming together a little bit more clearly. This is how I think of it. This is where I want my athletes to be is if you or a young kid puts their hand on a hot stove, they will immediately pull it away without intellectualizing it, without thinking about it. There's, there's no space for that. It's, this is hot. I need to pull that away. That's essentially what I would want it to be like. You're not intellectualizing it. You're not thinking about it. It's that narrow moment of presence of reacting and responding to a quality stimulus from a quality organism. Would that flow into flow state? Would, would that be playing in, in those fine lines of the creating Maybe. a flow state experience, the no mind? I think the flow state's a lot harder to get into than some people think. Um, I mean, it's definitely a choice where you have to continually make the choice to push your challenges just beyond your skills. And when that tiny little bit of maybe danger or uncertainty of what will happen comes to the forefront, you might get kicks, kicked into a flow state. Hmm. It's wild because I'm just starting to learn about all of these things and, and to, to, as a point of reference, like my identity as an athlete when I was really taking my preparation seriously was how much I could deadlift meant how good of a volleyball player I was. Like I was that guy. I was in that space. I'm, I'm curious. How, mu how much could you deadlift? I got the 500 pound off the floor. Oh, I hate you. <laughs> I got to 495. And that was no, it. that's it actually isn't the worst. It really doesn't matter. But that's tough considering you probably wanted the, the five bills. Yeah, I wanted the five Benjamins. Yeah. Um, I think my I got my I got my back squat to 465 as a six foot seven um, jacked up, not very mobile at that point in time athlete. Uh, great, but created some really terrible compensations, which wound up actually allowing me to blow out my lower back in, in playing <laughs> later on that summer, but that's for another conversation. Uh, and then in a bench press, I think I got up to about 315. I was like, stupid. I will have pieces of my body forever altered because of that journey. Mm -hmm. But that's just the way it was. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, so it still you know, doesn't mean you're going to have to have pain. You don't have to have pain. It'd be nice. I'm going to come down to California pretty quickly and we're going to jam out. But, you know, going from how much I lifted equated to how good of a volleyball player I was to then moving through that journey, breaking myself in a few different levels, having to figure out ninja body weight training and then realizing, holy smokes, like this is way more efficient for me to be a volleyball player moving faster, having a faster arm swing, not being big and 
slow and then moving in that path. Um, for you as someone who sees a ton of athletes, how has the 21st century lifestyle phones, poor posture, sitting all the time impacted the skeleton impacted our, our canvas on a day to day. And, and, and maybe I'll, I'll just leave it at that. It's presented new opportunities, new challenges, you know, in a positive sense in my pocket, I can record and replay back any and every movement I wish at 240 frames per second. On the other side, I can video and play back every single <laughs> movement that they can then post on social media and see how many times other people view it and play it back. Mm-hmm. I think student athletes are a victim of it as well. Now that teachers can put on 200 slides in a lecture instead of being limited to the 50 they could write on a whiteboard or blackboard. I don't think anybody is really prepared for the effect of technology and social media and that somewhat it should be a controlled substance somewhat like alcohol and cigarettes and even driving you know you have a little course before you learn how to drive and I think that that would be really useful for people as they get phones and social media platforms that Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, they would do, I think, a really great service for some people if they had a little onboarding course and knowing the dangers of their own product. I think that that might actually benefit their bottom line as that's what they're worried about rather than hurt it. Posturally, you know, it's not a good thing. Um, you know, I've got athletes that are six, seven with stretch marks down their entire spine. And, you know, it's from them sitting in two small of deck desks, looking at their phone, schoolwork or computer for too long of a time. And, you know, for instance, I'm sure you've probably picked up on that. I'm on the floor and have been moving around a little bit throughout this entire podcast. I, I'm actually really jealous. I would be down there <laughs> as well, but my setup is, is high. Yeah. Um, Attention spans are a lot harder. I've got one kid that I jokingly call him um, a puppy dog because he'll see a squirrel. What? What'd you say? And I have to um, repeat myself quite a bit. So what we've, what I've done is before every session or most sessions, I can kind of get a pickup, uh, an idea on how how focused he'll be and I say okay what what are we going to agree to today and he knows it's focus and I've been training him for a few years where he, he kind of knows my principles of movement and he knows how lenient I'll be with some and how strict I'll be with others especially with him and he'll say oh my knee hurts or my back hurts I don't feel good no oh, what'd you do oh, I wasn't thinking about my back in this squat and it was rounding, you know, and he, he's at a position or a point where he needs to be quite conscious and make a conscious effort of how he moves so that he can improve the quality of his organism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's, I give him the autonomy even when something hurts. It's like, well, you, you know better. 
So there's a ton of buy-in. You're creating a lot of buy-in for that. And I'm just trying to wrap my head around how we can all learn from this because the, the, the attention span is, is dwindling. People have certainly lost the ability to focus for longer periods of time. So you use the buy-in model, the, the autonomy, to then get that person to, to come into the session and get the most out of it. Yeah. And it's voluntary. I don't have packages. It's, you know, I don't, I don't want to give any ultimatums or say, Oh, you have to come to 12 sessions. It's, it's one by one. And, you know, another thing I'll use with some of these kids and people that are a little bit more, uh, less focused. So, Moving out of the psychology. Uh, no, I'm not done. Oh, I love, your pauses no, no. are forever. I love it. <laughs> Continue. That's 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 the point. Is this is what I'll do? Yeah. Is they'll show up and they'll be on their phone and I'll just sit on the ground. Right. And it, it, notice just even in podcasts and recording that silence is so exaggerated. It's three seconds or so, so before you said anything. Right, and everybody listening is like, "What? What? Did it? Did it cut out? Did my phone break? Did did my Bluetooth break? Uh oh!" Um, instead of just being able to sit with the silence, and <laughs> so then you know, thirty seconds will roll by, and then they will notice, like, "Oh, I'm I'm in the gym right now. I'm here. I'm supposed to be training and focused and ready to work with Austin." And then the phone goes away and. And then, like, they're still jittery. They're still, like, thinking a thousand frames per second. And I'll ask, and, like, they'll be, oh, okay. All right. And then we go. Is one of the first things that I learned on my journey of public speaking is the power of silence. Mm -hmm. There's so much power in dropping a bomb, or not even but just pausing. It and is... notice the speed that you're talking at now. Yeah, right? So much slower. <laughs> so good. Bait, bait and hook, my friend, you got me. Um, well, where I wanted to go with that in, in all valuable lessons for, for teachers and coaches and educators or, or if you are looking to have a conversation with someone, bait them in versus scold and and let them know they're doing something wrong. I love that. And you're you're Pavlovian dogging them into slowly tucking in their attention span slower and slower, uh, which I, I dig. Uh, the environment. And so listening to some of your higher level conversations with guests and doctors and other things, you and and your um, your partner at Epiros, I, if blanking on his name right now, Jeff. Jeff, thank you. Um, you guys have had some unbelievable conversations, and, and I'll leave in the show notes your podcast so people can dive in because they're great. But you guys have spoken about you know like primary principles of life and, and gravity and, and light and other things that have been gut feelings for me to dive into and, and you guys have really given me permission to go for it because I now know, yes, I need to invest more time. Like, can you talk to me a little bit about the, the primary principles that, that you operate by or that you're aware of? Mm-hmm. Um, I call them the first principles of life and there's six. 
And it's pretty much all these things that are taken for granted, but are absolutely essential for cellular life to exist on earth. And it's the first principles that are consistent and have been consistent throughout pretty most of the earth's existence. First one being gravity. Once the planet earth was formed, gravity was there. Um, or the Earth's magnetism, uh, as woo-woo as it might sound, the uh, magnetism of the Earth and your skin on dirt uh, or Earth or grass is quite important. It changes when you go up seven miles in the air and fly somewhere. Um, so does the frequency that of radiation that you receive in the, from the sun. You know, it's the water that you drink, the air, the temperature change that we're supposed to go through with the seasons, those are all essential things for cellular life to flourish. They're these static foundational principles that need to be there so that you can have some dynamic growth. Amazing. Well, is there more that you want to dive into? How deep do you want to go down the rabbit hole? <laughs> well... I want to talk to you. the The first one was gravity, and and you've really opened my eyes to that. And now I'm I'm going on my own journey of that. And, and my physical practice now is really trying to have a good strategy every single day to work with and, and build myself with with or against, depending on how you look at it, gravity. And so you know, I I now understand weights from a different it's not just a weight there i'm doing that to create a stimulus against gravity and a thought process that i've been chewing on for a long time is with sitting all the time and and, and using our, our technology and being in this terrible posture that those positions that we're in our body's constantly trying to accommodate those positions by tightening certain certain things because we don't like slack and all of a sudden our frame is changing and essentially is trying to mold into the shape of a chair. And then we go out and we try to fitness and exercise as hard as we can with this evolved or de-evolved position. Um, and so I'm seeing a lot of people that think that the intensity piece is, is where the juice is, but they're just totally broken because what they're doing throughout their life day to day is putting them in a, in a tough spot. Does that show up for you? Yeah, um, it's an elegance. How well do you cooperate with gravity? How well do you use it for you or against you? And, um, you know, I was listening to a lecture from a university biomechanics professor a few weeks ago, and he was saying that the, the main and only force that we experience is compression. And unfortunately, that is true. However, it's really easy and there's some low-hanging fruit for decompression and i think it's hilarious that people spend hundreds of dollars on inversion boards and these boots to hook into bars so that you can hang upside down and decompress your joints and your spine when it's already built in you have hands and arms that are meant to hang and twist and brachiate brachiation means to like swing from branch to branch swing on monkey bars you go to a playground swing on monkey bars 10 20 minutes i promise 
you will feel better, maybe a little sore. Um, but it, it's an absolutely essential movement that nobody is doing. And it is resulting in our shoulders and upper back and spine changing, especially the shoulder. The shoulder is the shoulder structure is intended to have this hanging stress on it to to mold into a proper shape. And we don't we don't get that enough. And when we don't get that enough, we get s- several impingements and. and surgeries and pains and especially in a sport like volleyball when it's played above the head and you need to have diverse and quality stimuli above the head it makes so much sense to me that hanging should be a critical thing that we do yeah god i mean i would i would pay for my local airport to put in some bars to hang in um when i'm there (laughs) <laughs> me too <laughs> I, i've taken to doing handstands in uh in airports and then uh a, a part of the decompression of my strategy is the foundation training so that the hips up anchoring below the pelvis to then create this upwards traction to decompress the, the lower back and then adding a breath cycle to that um really enjoying it but then how did i totally blank out on hanging man it's i mean it's everybody blanks out on it yeah, I even I've known about it for a few years, but until I read a book um, all about hanging and the, the structural changes that go on when we hang actively, passively, and dynamically, that's when it really hit home. I was like, oh my God, everybody needs to be doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, the book is, I don't know, if you type in hanging and Dr. Kirsch, shoulder institute that's k-i-r-s-c-h the book will come up it's dirt cheap really short and quite amazing noted i'll get it immediately i'll put those in the show notes as well um let's move into the magnetism side because i'm super intrigued as to what like let's call it a a strategy is that you use in your day-to-day life because the environment piece is something that we don't necessarily think about all that often but i think our environment plays an enormous role in in our health and vitality how do you approach resolving the the current issues that we have whether it be you know 5g waves in, in in that coming out or, or light or that kind of thing um you know your environment um the grounding piece to be honest i don't i know it's important however i don't know enough i think to even speak to it i just know it's really important it changes how your body functions i forget a little bit uh, exactly how and instead of misspeaking i'd rather just say it's important so just get outside uh, in your bare feet yeah we'll oh yeah yeah snow on the ground sweet that's that's the cherry on top um but environment's everything man it's you know people say what's popular right now is you're the average of the five people you associate most with mm-hmm. well guess what you're the average of the physical environment you place yourself in too not just social and so if you're sitting all the time, you're slowly becoming a chair. If you're walking all the time, you're getting a little bit better at walking. But if you're a mailman walking and carrying your mailbag all on one shoulder, well, that's going to slowly, your body's going to adapt towards that. 
Um, it's so important. Absolutely. Um, and then do you dive into the, the waves or the 5G or anything along those lines, like in terms of creating an environment at home? Are you, you know, turning your cell phone off at night and that kind of thing? Are you in tune with, with light energy and, and then frequencies? Oh, absolutely. Um, in my bedroom and my bathroom, I've got smart light bulbs that I turn to red at night. And then if uh, I am using any screens, I've got some blue blocker glasses uh, what else do I do? I don't, there, it's like become a habit. I don't remember everything when I can. Um, I will try and get direct sunlight into my eyes around sunrise and sunset. Yeah. Uh, my patio uh, is connected directly to my bedroom. And what that does for me is it sets my biological clock. And so the, your biological clock is regu- regulated by it's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And you could think the doorway into that is through your eyes. And when your eyes receive the um, radiation and light information from the sun, basically the clock of the earth, then that helps regulate your biology on what time you should wake up, what time you should go to bed. Nailed it. The, uh, I was just in Costa Rica and we did sunrise and sunsets every single day and just literally sun gazed in the morning and sun gazed at night and, the quality of my sleep was unparalleled. And yeah. so we've we've now in our home adopted all of those things to really own our environment and live as, as close to the natural way of things, way of light. And it's it's showing up in quality of life like I, I couldn't imagine, man. And and this is one of the things that I think are also is also affected by technology is we pay for things and observe things that we want change, observable change instantly, and we lose a sensitivity of things. And that some listeners might try the sunrise and sunset thing for a few weeks and then be like, I didn't notice anything. I'm just going to go back to staring at my phone all day and having normal lights. Um, whereas if people weren't so reactive and desensitized to these things, they might start to notice the changes or notice that they slept a little bit more restful that they actually woke up when the sun rise and they started to get tired when the sun started to set and instead of staying up till 11 or 12 working on stuff watching movies play video games they're like "Uh, i'm just tired i'm gonna go to bed and i'm not gonna look at many screens and then uh, it's weird i don't think i need to set an alarm anymore i just wake up when the sun rises and well, that's so much nicer. I don't have this like loud, obnoxious chirping into my ear in the morning. And you know, I've woken up before the sunrise or at sunrise for the last three weeks. Like I'm pretty confident I don't need this alarm. I'll get to work on time. Yeah, that's that's cool, man. Um, let's get into one one last little question, one last little rabbit hole. Um, volume. And, and the current state of sport and how we are just constantly in this overtrained state. Um, can you uh, can you just lay lay the cards on the table here? Because I, I think you are absolutely onto something and I'm seeing it all the time. But you know, we're pushing so hard and at such young ages now that you know we're we're in a bit of a crisis mode. Talk to me about how that shows up for you. Yeah, absolutely. This started to come up once I started hanging out with my super friends of doctors. Um, And one of them is Dr. Ted Achacoso. And he he is one of the smartest human beings to ever exist. 
And when I interviewed him on my podcast, he he said something that triggered an alarm for me and said pretty much every athlete is overtraining. And I that that seed sat with me for a long time. And to be honest, I was like, he's a doctor. He doesn't play sports right now. He he doesn't know. Like I was in such denial and I'm sorry, Ted or any of my other doctor friends that are listening. Um, I didn't believe him. And, and were you, were you holding on to your own story there? Like wh- why just for a quick sec? Yeah. Holding on to my own story, holding on to the culture of sports, like thinking somebody in the world has to be doing it right. But unfortunately as a, the problem solving activity of sport needs people to play so often that everybody is under recovered and under performing their potential. And so sport at this point as competitive season is not a play at your absolute potential, but can you make it work? And is your 90% or 80% better than somebody else's 90 or 80%? Because pretty much nobody is at a hundred percent, which is scary but really cool because that means we've still got so much more potential as a human performance organism. And where this is, I keep on finding this research that shows after, as much as I don't want to find it, um, shows that after really intense activities, one rep max lifts, whatever, people are still recovering up to 10 days later. Yeah. And you see one of the only worlds that actually respects this is bodybuilding, surprisingly or not, where they say, you're going to work out so intensely on one body part one day, and then you're not going to touch it for at least a week. And why this is, and and why we need this increased recovery time is that um, after puberty, so there's repair and then there's growth. And before puberty, it's your purpose is you need to grow. You need to grow. You need to get to a certain size and physiological status in order to reproduce. Once after that, it's about, okay, stay alive. Just keep existing. And so then it goes from growth first and then repair to repair and then growth. And so when adults train or kids after 16, 18, whatever, Um, The first few days is just repair. And can we get back to 100%? And then beyond that, okay, we still remember the stimulus from four or five days ago. That was pretty intense. Let's prepare for the next time that that might happen. We're adapting to our environment. Let's start growing beyond that. And, you know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong with this. Maybe there's some research I haven't found, but from what I'm seeing, this is what seems to be true over and over and over again, that at least about 10 days after a really intense activity, things are still recovering hmm. and growing. So that's physiologically. And then from a psychological perspective, the more I'm in tune with this and the more environments I'm showing up in, you know, there's a lot of stress now in, in youth sport and youth development because there's just more expectation. The seasons are longer and wider. There's high-performance camps in every single break that's meant for rest. 
the direction that we're going is, is I call this the, the race to the bottom right now. And kids are unfortunately the currency and they're, they're losing the fun. Um, have you thought about, let's say, the, the development side of sport and, and how to potentially adjust its trajectory right now um, based on what you're seeing? Um, yes. But also what I was talking about is not just, uh, not just connective tissue, muscle and bones. It's meant it's mental. It's the brain too. Yes. the brain. The, you, so what's astonine, 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 astonine. Thank you. Yeah. Um, is that you're expecting your kids and athletes to get better at a skill that is predominantly about how your brain organizes the vehicle that it is in, which is based off of the neurons and neurogenesis. And for that process to happen, there has to be time for repair and growth. And you have to feed your brain good building blocks. And I mean, we can dive into nutrition too, so that it can repair and grow. And so you need to get space away from the activity in order to get better at it. And this is something Josh Waitzkin talks about in The Art of Learning, um, is that he cultures his life for empty space. And why he does that is so that he can have uh, self-expression or creative self-expression, uninhibited creative self-expression. And he knows that space is one of the best ways that he can do that so that he can allow his subconscious and physiology to repair and grow and get the ideas out that he wants. And then to more directly answer your question, you were talking about what could kids do, right? Mm-hmm. It's tough because there's also a lot of research saying that if you want to survive in modern day sports, you need a chronic training stimulus. You need to be having some sort of physical activity year round. Maybe it's varied and different than what you normally do, but in order to survive the um, overtraining, you need to have some experience overtraining. You need to have some some chronic stress, and so it's a really double edged sword where it's not perfect. I don't know if it ever will be, but um, the fun part of the riddle is how can we optimize this? How can we optimize? the training and rest so that when it comes time to show up and be your best, you have the potential to be your best Mm -hmm. in a nutshell. I would say recovery modalities and nutrition and sleep and meditation and float tanks are more important than ever. Yeah. I'm on it, man. I, I feel you on that. Well, that's my, my goal is to work with athletes to build athletic prowess regardless of sport. And it's just how do you solve physical problems? And then that doesn't necessarily take away from the sport, but hopefully enhances it um, both in mind and body and life. So, yeah, man, it's, it's an exciting time because I think there's a lot of people that are like, oh, man, like playing 360 days, one sport isn't serving me as well as playing three sports or having a couple pastimes that support this activity so I can have a mental and physical break consistently. Yeah, even, even as an athlete, even as a volleyball player, like why can't your hobby, can't you just go play tennis too? You being a tennis player, I promise, is going to help you be a better volleyball player. Mm-hmm. The, the movement problem is quite similar. Um, why, like why can't you go play basketball? I, I pisses me off that most professional athletes' contracts say, no, you can't go wakeboarding. No, you can't go mountain biking. Oh, you can definitely not go surfing. You might get bitten by a shark. 
and then we're going to lose our multi-million dollar product. When in reality, that might make them a more valuable multi-million dollar product. <laughs> Love it, man. Well, one one last thing, because it was is something that I wanted to ask you about. Um, where does your creativity come from? Because the way you move, the questions that you ask other guests, like how you articulate yourself, you know, where does that come from? Because it feels like you're asking different questions of yourself and others than, than what I'm used to hearing. And, and I'm just so fascinated. Um, I, don't, I don't really know. I would, if I knew, I would be like, oh, let me turn up the knob on that. I have an idea that it's um, this overarching belief that I really don't know anything. There's so much more for me to know. I've only been doing this. I thought I've been doing this for longer, but funnily enough, um, one of the benefits of social media, the Facebook time capsule thing was showing me a picture of that first day with Dwight. That was only four years ago. Um, and it's like, wow, I've only been doing this for four years. Oh, wow. That reinforces one of my other things that growth is not linear just because I've only been doing it for four years does not mean that I have less knowledge or less experience than other people, mm-hmm. um, who've been doing it for a longer chronological age. Uh, yeah, I, I guess the, it's a curiosity. Like I don't, there's so much I don't know and I'm just curious and I want to know and, um, as things progress scientifically and performance wise, I think there's always going to be something to know and say, we start getting things better culturally, like, Oh, then that's going to change everything. That's going to change the process. Everything, everybody's going to be competing at a higher level, um, a rising tide will float all ships. And then it's like, okay, then how do we have this new ship be faster than the other ships and this new tide Love and that. shameless plug. Um, for a book that I don't write, but basically is my Bible is Robert Persig's uh, uh, books. This one's Lila, his sequel to Zen and Art of Motorcycle, Ma- Zen and Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and this is it's phenomenal, and it, it gets me to ask really good questions, and it clarifies a lot of my own thoughts and questions. His he's way beyond his time. I don't know if a lot of people will understand this book. Um, or enjoy it. Not everybody does, but I think 100 or 200 years from now, people might read this and be like, holy shit, this guy was hundreds of years ahead of time. Mm-hmm. The more I discover, just like you, the more I realize I know nothing. And the more <laughs> I realize that my physicality is I dare I say limited, but limited in comparison to how far I can go mentally. And I wish that I focused more on my coconut more when I was playing professionally. <laughs> <laughs> Cause there, I left so much on the table, man. Uh, so th- this is, this has been a super enlightening conversation. And I know we, we went into the weeds a couple times, but for the listeners, like ask bigger questions. And Austin asks a hell of a good question on a daily basis to himself and to his clients. And I'd I'd like to say you're creating something really special, man. Thank you. And, and so this is one of the things that I try to do for myself and my athletes is notice what I feel. And it feels right for me to read this certain passage right now. Let's do it. First reading. I love it. Okay. So this is from chapter eight 
of Lila. And um, it's a few paragraphs. So the idea that the world is composed of nothing but moral value sounds impossible at first. Only objects are supposed to be real. Quality is supposed to be just a vague fringe word that describes what we think about objects. The whole idea that quality can create objects seems very wrong. But we see subjects and objects as reality for the same reason we see the world right side up, although the lenses of our eyes actually present it to us in our brains upside down. We get so used to certain patterns of interpretation that we forget the patterns are there. Phaedrus, uh, the main character, remembered reading about an experiment with special glasses that made users see everything up upside down and backwards soon their minds adjusted and they began to see the world normally again after a few weeks when the glasses were removed the subjects again saw everything upside down and had to relearn the vision they had taken for granted before the same is true of subjects and objects the culture in which we live hands us a set of intellectual glasses to interpret experience with and the concepts and the concept of the primacy of subjects and objects is built right into these glasses. If someone sees things through a somewhat different set of glasses or, God help him, takes, these, takes his glasses off, the natural tendency of those who still have their glasses on is, regard, is to regard his statements as somewhat weird, if not actually crazy. But he isn't. The idea that values create objects gets less and less weird as you get used to it. Modern physics, on the other hand, gets more and more weird as you get into its indications. And it, as you get into it, and indications are that this weirdness will increase. In either case, however, weirdness isn't the test of truth. As Einstein said, common sense, non-weirdness is just a bundle of prejudices acquired before the age of 18. Mm -hmm. The tests of truth are logical consistency, agreement with experience, and economy of explanation. The metaphysics of quality satisfies these. That was heavy, man. Yeah, it takes a few reads to get through, but it's spectacular. I'm not even going to try to deconstruct that. I'm going to have to listen to that for, for myself and go into <laughs> it. It, it. Just to create some context around it, what what is the purpose of, of the usage for you in, in reading that to your athletes or, or bringing it up for your athletes? Um, is that so much of what we believe is just these social and intellectual glasses we've been given by our environment and culture. And then when you remove those and start viewing things differently, you might be thought of as crazy or weird, but really you're seeing things more accurately than society and culture may believe. For instance, like my views on the volleyball warm-up, like why do we need to warm up? What's wrong with us? Do you see a lion warming up before it hunts an antelope? Like the fact that we are as a culture need a warm up is just an attestment, a, a testament to how poorly we're moving. And even then, the warm ups are piss poor across <laughs> the world. Uh, that's great, man. We'll we'll end it there because that would be another tunnel that we can maybe do in, in a part two at another time. But um, yeah. it's been a pleasure, man. I I love it. You got so much breadth to, to the conversations that you're having. So. Um, 
definitely more for another time but thanks thanks for everything dude it's it's been fun learning from you and, and asking bigger questions for myself and all too frequently you flip them right back on me and, and force me to to create my my own solutions so i appreciate that hey, thank you man thanks so much for having me you're a great conversationalist and love bouncing ideas off you sweet man well let's jam soon uh stay online i'm just gonna cut it off but thanks so much for your time man all right thank you okay